Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. Last week we, we started talking about one of my I believe phrases that I felt like the Lord spelled out for us for the beginning of the year. And I can't, can you throw up that I believe? Okay, what does that say? All right. I believe 2022 will be a year of great advancement in developing our relationship with ourself. And really, the root of that is this idea that if you can't have a relationship with yourself, it's almost impossible for you to have a relationship with anyone else, including God. And so we're talking about emotionally healthy spirituality, which it's kind of like, well, Steve, are you going to talk a bunch of psychology today? Well, the word psychology comes from the word suke, which is the word for soul, S-O-U-L. And there's a lot of talk about that in the Bible. So yes, we are. We're going to talk about some things that we started last week, and I was using a building metaphor, and we're going to continue to use that. Um, I was correct. Some people say, sometimes Steve says metaphor, and sometimes Steve says metaphor, and which one is it? I don't know. Whichever one I... If I'm in doing Tennessee accent, it's metaphor. Okay. So... This, this whole idea that God is building a house, and part of the reason we're using that analogy is because I was a builder, and so I'm really comfortable with that. Even though I must confess, it's not the only metaphor that Jesus describes the church and his people and the assignment we're giving, because no metaphor is sufficient to describe all that he wants to do. So he uses these things to give us handles because we need handles. The bride is an incredible illustration of what his heart is. He is compassionate and passionate about. But we're, we're going we're gonna to not touch on that as much as we do the other one. But the main objective we looked at last week was in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is saying, hey, you builders, I'm, I'm a master builder that laid a foundation. And any of you coming after me need to be very, 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 very careful about the way you build. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today is about the whole idea of, of leadership. And as, I, as we looked at it last week, the reason the Bible doesn't talk a lot about leadership in the New Testament is it talks about discipleship. Because if you're a disciple maker, you are a leader. If you're a parent, you are a leader. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you are a leader. If you're a classroom teacher, you are a leader. If you have someone you're serving, a customer, you are a leader. And, of course, the New Testament radically redefined leadership to the point that it was a completely alien concept. And the fact of the matter is, it remains an alien concept. It's so difficult to really understand emotionally healthy leadership. And so today, I want us to look at a couple of emotional characteristics that we first have to begin to identify in ourselves. The first one is, 
I need to be able to really like me. And most of us, at some point in our life, have a preponderance of negative conversations about who we are. And in a way, what we've done in the church is we've talked so much about dying to self that somehow we've equated that as hating ourselves. Well, Jesus didn't ask us to all become suicide bombers. He asked us to die to that old contaminated self. And what I mean by contaminated self is what in 2 Thessalonians, a phrase in the New Testament uses this phrase, the mystery of iniquity or the mystery of lawlessness. I don't want to get too overly theological here, but it's just a really important concept for us to, it's an abstract concept, but I, you know, the kids don't get it and some of you are going to check out, but pay attention. There is something that happened that when Adam and Eve fell, and our ancestors have sinned, all of them have, we all can acknowledge that, because you know your mom and dad, <coughs> and you know what they've, they've done and what they're capable of, and your grandparents, and even if you didn't know it, that's an evidence that they sinned, because they didn't take care of you. And so this thing is like an inheritance. It is something that happens to us before we're us. And that is the mystery of iniquity. And it's a lot different than sin and trespass. Sin is when I miss the mark. Trespass is when I intentionally go and sin. And a lot of times trespass is very relational. But the root of that foundation is I am not utterly, totally, even Calvin said this, we're not totally and utterly wicked. We just have a default to where that's where we tend to channel ourselves. Now, when we are born again, none of that per se gets changed. I'm going to say that again. And I'm going to say this because it's going to shock us a little bit, but we've become so transactional in the way we approach Christianity. We get, this, we get the deal, we do the deal, we get born again, so the deal's done, right? And, we get, and then we spend the rest of our life either getting frustrated or, or confused. And we go, well, I thought I got everything when I got Jesus. How come now I'm acting like I, worse than I did when I, before I was a believer? I mean, am I talking to the right crowd? I mean, I just want to make sure I'm... It's like, what is Steve talking about? He, he's, he was worse after he got... Yeah, there were some things I did worse. I was only 16 years old when I got born again. Then I found out some of the sin that I didn't know about, and it tempted me. Okay? Why did it tempt me? Well, I think one of the answers is the mystery of iniquity. James said it. He said, you're enticed by your own desires. God doesn't tempt anybody. There's something rooted inside of you that 
produces that. And then, then we go and we hear a scripture verse that says, all things are new. You're a brand new creation. All the old has passed away. And now we start getting confused. And now we start wondering if we even believe this thing. And part of it has to do with the fact that we now have the seed of eternal... I'm going to say it as simply as I can. You and I now have the seed of eternal life that displaces the seed of eternal death. It's that simple. And that seed is the seed that has in it the oak tree of someone that looks like Jesus. But it has to be cultivated. And it takes time. And I say, we get, we're missing a lot of our college students, but we have quite a few young adults. And here's what you're going to continue to find as you continue in this walk with Jesus. You will find your attraction for the law of death to be greater than your, the law of righteousness at moments. And when you do, that's an opportunity for you to begin to establish your relationship with Jesus based on his absolute, total acceptance of you where you are. And what, the, what we can do inadvertently by identifying sin as being something so awful and anti-God is we can inadvertently assume that therefore he's mad at us. That's why he gave you eternal life. That's what grace is all about. I know you're really tempted. Tell me about it. Well, if you really want to tell the Lord about your temptation, guess what begins to happen to you? The temptation begins to disappear because you're now connecting with the one who loves you immeasurably. And many of us want to run and hide when we begin to be tempted. This really doesn't have a whole lot to have to do with emotional intelligence and relational intelligence. But in a way it does because you're, we're talking primarily about a relationship with yourself. If you don't know how to be kind to yourself, if you've not experienced the capacity to love yourself, then who are you not going to be able to love? Anyone? Anyone? Ferris Bueller? Anyone? Anyone? Your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, we're supposed to deny ourselves and take up our cross and die daily? I'm going to say it again. If you do not embrace the major, one of the major doctrines of the church via Steve Jellicorse, the doctrine of paradox, the Scripture is filled with paradox, which is one of the reasons a lot of people do not understand the Scripture at all, is they don't approach it understanding these paradoxes. And, one of, and really what I'm talking about is the difference between imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. That's a good phrase for all of you to write down. When you were born again, you got imputed righteousness. You became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 
That is not a controversy. But what isn't obvious is <coughs> you are still, you may still have cursed, you may still have been angry and bitter and resentful and petty and shy and demurring when in fact you, that wasn't really the you that God made you to be. And you say, are you saying those are, 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 are all sins? I'm, I'm saying they're not the full human that you're supposed to be. And the full human you're supposed to be is in the seed of eternal life that's been planted in you. But tragically and unfortunately, so much of us as believers just drag into heaven. Everything we've done is burned up and we make it as one who's gone through a fire. And we have very little to show for it. And we're petty and we're resentful and all these negative things that happen because they seem more comfortable than actually loving our enemy. And it's impossible to love your enemy if you don't love you. All right. So, um, the first part of how we learn how to really love ourselves is we have to learn how to be quiet and restful with ourselves. So one of the reasons we build our buildings badly is we capitulate to the incessant hurry and busyness of the American culture. Do you know in, in America it's a virtue to be a workaholic? We are the most productive nation on the planet. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are, we, we have embraced the idea that God has made us to be productive. But he's also made us to enjoy rest. And when God rested, he really rested on the seventh day as an example for us. And most of us work, 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 work. And, and when we aren't working, we're working in our head. And we're thinking about it. Instead of really contemplating the Lord, sitting quietly, turning our thoughts toward Him, anticipating His voice speaking to us. I love to sit with a Bible and two or three of the books that I am currently feel led to read as I listen and wait with the Lord. Because I cannot tell you how many times he'll go, I want you to go turn to page 76 in that book. And then he'll remind, he'll, first, a lot of times he'll remind me of a scripture. Now this is the way I work with Jesus. This is the way I have a relationship with Jesus. So I'll be sitting there and I'll have this verse that the Lord will pop into my mind. It's not very systematic. It's kind of relational. You know how God's not a course director or instructor or professor. He's not teaching you nuclear science today. He's, he's your father. There's a whole array of intersections that he wants to have with you. So he doesn't just dictate one thing. He, he is... He is showing you how he lives. And so what happens is, as you sit there and wait on him, 
Waiting on the Lord is loving the Lord. You know that, don't you? Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered the heart of man the things he has prepared for them that love him. You know that verse in 1 Corinthians? Well, that verse is just a Paul taking it from Isaiah 63 or 4. And in Isaiah 60, it said, uh, let's say 63. Somewhere, as it says in the scripture, um, it, says, it says all that same thing except it changes the very last phrase. Eye has not seen, ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of those who wait on him. See, Paul equated waiting on the Lord to loving the Lord. And it's almost impossible to do that in America. It's like quick, quick, quick. What, you know, get, when are you going to get to your point, Steve? Well, try to do that with the Lord. You'll see how silent he is. Are you going to wait on him? Or is he going to be your servant? See, a lot of us treat our Christianity as if it's a self-improvement program. God, I need to improve, so you come in here and prove me. And then he speaks to you something completely off, and he starts speaking to you. And so what I've done many times is I've sat there, because that's the way the Lord likes to talk to me. It's not the way he has to do it with you. You're going to discover your way as you wait on him. But I love it when I'll take two or three books and a Bible, and the Lord will speak a verse, and then he'll speak a page number in one of those books, and it'll be sometimes it'll be that very verse. Because he knows what's in the books. And what I want to share with you is that's relational. It's, he's not try, those are the times when he actually changes you. And as he changes you, you change out of an encounter with him. So Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. A lack of rest somehow produces a life of disobedience. Here's what I want to say to all of you. If you will learn how to rest in God, you will get more done with the six hours you have. I mean, the six days you have than the seven you're now working. Now, I had to learn this about 25, 20, some odd, almost 30 years ago, somewhere. And, and let, me, let me describe it. I was an overachieving uh, driven entrepreneur business leader. I was out. I, I had so many, so little emotional health in so many areas. I was just driven to be successful because I was trying to prove something to somebody I don't know who. So many of us are like that. There's the phantom somebody we're living our life before instead of the audience of one. 
And we don't even realize it. And I didn't realize it. <laughs> and I have this really amazing encounter with God. And the Lord, begin, he begins to speak to me about what he wants me to do. And he, and he begins to get me to make some new consecrations to him. And I begin to say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I begin to say, I, I write yes. And the first thing he says, I want you to go to your office and I want you to begin to pray for three hours in the morning. Lord, I have a kid in college, another one getting ready to go, and I, 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 I don't have time for three hours. He said, well, you have back taxes. You owe me. <laughs> that Lord has a sense of humor. He really does. He, 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 he's relational. And so I began to spend an hour. It's about all I could do. Then I'd get back on my, oh, by the way, I'd, I'd lost my job. That was, that was the other thing I didn't tell you. See, the Lord started pulling out every prop that I had, I had so successfully built in my life. And he was pulling these out. And so these headhunters, because I was, I fancied myself and, you know, I had enough headhunters to, headhunters to reinforce that illusion that I was a desirable product as, a, as an executive for a certain type of industry. And I was getting all these phone calls from these headhunters with these incredible jobs out of Raleigh. And I would take those phone calls and I'd hang up and the Lord would say, that's not for you. I don't want you to return his phone calls anymore. I don't even want you to respond. And the Lord began to teach me a lesson. He said, you know, I said, you do not have to worry about you, that I will take care of you. But you don't really believe that, do you? No, I really don't believe that, Lord. I had emotional, in, a lack of emotional intelligence. I was like the kid who didn't believe his father would actually take care of him, so he went and hired him out as a slave laborer. I mean, how? And his father is a multi, 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 generous millionaire. That would be a very dumb kid. Or emotionally broken. And that's what I was. And I began to just trust the Lord. Now I knew God's not endorsing laziness. But it sure felt like waiting on the Lord was laziness to me. Can I just tell you? You got to get your definitions redefined. You're not going to feel like you're doing anything when you're waiting on God. Because you aren't. What you're doing is getting yourself in a position that the God Almighty of heaven can prove himself strong on your behalf. That's it. In 2015, the Lord began to ask me, he said, do you want to continue to take care of yourself or do you want me to? I'd gotten back into it. I had my own company by then. The Lord had inspired that company. The Lord had directed it. I, I had followed his direction. I was, I was doing what God told me to do until 
I kept doing what God was telling me I didn't need to do any longer. And I was kind of, because you know, doing what I'm doing right now was the last thing I ever wanted to do again. Ever. I mean, there was just something about doing what I'm doing now that had just totally lost its appeal. Because, because you know why? I'd had some really lousy mot- motives on the first time, and I still hadn't got all those dealt with. But over the intervening 15, 20 years, the Lord began to deconstruct all those negative emotions and motives. And he, he basically, you know, Paul said this. Paul said, no one is weak, and I am weak. No one sins without me burning in pain. I, I don't know too many pastors like that. I don't know too many spiritual leaders like that. But that Paul, he didn't, he wasn't judging the Corinthians when he was so firmly correcting them. He was empathizing deeply with them, but he wasn't, he, he loved them just the way they were, but he loved them too much to leave them the way they were. And that is what God's doing in every one of our lives. You know, for deeply consecrated people, our greatest temptation is to do for Jesus rather than be with Jesus. God must never become our job or our affection, but only our affectionate passion. Many of us have learned that what becomes our job, even when we were originally passionate about it to start with, soon becomes stale and lifeless. And here's why. We place on it the wrong burden. We burden it by making it our source instead of the Lord. Do I need to say that again? There's a whole culture out there in the business world, all you young people, you hear, do your passion, pursue your passion. And you look at all the 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds who have none left, and you go, yeah, I want to do my passion. They obviously didn't do theirs because they're stale and lifeless. They hate their jobs. Well, it's because they've been trusting in it instead of the Lord. (coughs) I just want to say, you can actually trust him to take care of you. But learning how to trust is an emotional health. It's not a spiritual health. I mean, it's, it's tied to it. But we've so separated spirituality and deep emotion. How many of you were trained with the faith is the engine and feelings are the caboose? Anybody remember that teaching years and years ago? Is almost like forget the caboose. Just cut it off. You know, you don't need it. 
That's really what we did in the church. We said emotions are bad. So as a consequence, we don't know how to deal with sadness, grief, anger, shame, fear. And believe you me, all of us have it. Men never admit they have fear, though. But, of course, we're driven to prove ourselves to somebody that's not actually there. And that's, of course, not fear at all. Right? Of course it is. We're afraid. We're afraid of being ashamed. So we deal with shame and fear at the same time. Instead of going, Father, I know you are on my side. He's, I would almost say he's like a stage mom, but he doesn't empower our inabilities. You know, he doesn't treat us like we're invalid. He, he goes, no, you can do it. Go back in the game. I believe in you. That's our Father in heaven. Here's a test. I want to, about whether you're more of a doer for Jesus than a beer for Jesus. I can't shake the pressure I feel having too much to do in too little time. I'm ignoring the stress, anxiety, and tightness in my body physically. I'm concerned with what others think. I'm often fearful about the future. I am defensive and easily, easily offended. I'm preoccupied and distracted. I fire off quick opinions and judgments on Facebook. <laughs> That's just the worst manifestation of it. <clears throat> I feel unenthusiastic about or threatened by the success of others. And I spend more time talking than listening. I got that from Peter Scazzaro, who has a book I recommend for every person in this church. Go out and buy it. It's called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. All right, the next thing we do to build our house wrong is we capitulate to shallow and questionable definitions of success. All right, I want you to turn to Numbers 20, <coughs> verse 1. I think it's up here. It'll be up here in a second. Ignore what's up there and just listen. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Aaron and said, If only we died with our brother, when our brothers fell before the Lord. Why? Did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? And why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? By the way, those are two whys in a row. And I just want to throw this out. This is, a good, this is a rule that goes in my life. I don't ask God why about anything. Never. I never ask why questions. You know what I ask? What must I do and what does this mean? Why is the question of a victim? What is a question of a son? 
and a daughter who know who they are. Why turns into whining. Just kind of remember that. There's no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to him. That's pretty cool. Appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you're not going to be able to bring this community into the land that I've given you. Now, there's a couple of observations here. Aaron and Moses' sister just died, Miriam, right? So you're literally at the funeral, and a whole gang of people from the church show up at your door and start screaming at you about what a bad leader you are. Can you, can you be in that moment? <laughs> That's what happened. The children of Israel are completely insensitive to the fact that Miriam has died. And these two brothers are in grief. And these are the two leaders of the whole nation. And the Lord brings them, these two brothers, into his presence. And he says, see that staff? Now, here's the interesting thing. And... and there's, a, there's another story in Exodus at the Rock of Meribah that's completely different. And some scholar says it's just a retelling of the same story. But all the Jewish rabbis, the majority, believe that this was, the first one was the story of striking the rock when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. And this last story is coming to the same place They've been circling in the desert for 40 years. In other words, they're doing the same thing except worse. They don't get better. They get worse. And in fact, God said to the children of Israel, you're not going to enter the promised land way back at the beginning because of your disobedience. I'm going to let your children do it. I'm going I'm to wipe the slate clean and try to work with them. And hopefully they'll see your example and try not to emulate it. And so I believe this is the end of the 40-year period. Because there's something different. The first time God told Moses to strike the rock with his staff. This time he said, speak to it. 
You go, well, is God just being particular? Yeah, he is. He's wanting to move us from using force to using our words. I mean, we say that to our four-year-olds. Quit whining. Quit. Use words. Tell me what you want. I hear Andrea say that to her boys all the time. Use your words. Use your words. (coughs) You can't have a relationship without a voice. And you can't have a voice without a relationship. And God is, is always about his voice. It's one of the people come in here and they go, you guys talk about the prophetic. And that's kind of weird. I, where I go to church, well, you don't talk about the prophetic and hearing God. And Are you telling me God still speaks? Yeah, he does. Well, couldn't that get erroneous? Yeah, that's why you have to judge prophecy. But it doesn't mean God, does, God lost his voice. We just lost our ability to hear. And he's trying to restore that to his church. And he's wanting us to hear him both through his word and his own voice. He has one. And he knows how to speak to you and me in our particular life. And so, so Moses, so here's the, here's the deal. Here's anointed leadership that are in the presence of God that do supernatural things and accomplish miracles that satisfy God's people. And they were completely disobedient to the Lord. And this is why in, uh, let me just read it to you. I, I just was reading this the other day and I, he says, you put up, he's talking to the Corinthians about the false apostles. He says, you gladly put up with fools since you're so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for doing any of that to you. That's a little sarcasm on Paul's part. Here's a a truth. God would not let Moses in to the promised land because teachers, people like me, And people like you, as you make disciples, incur a greater discipline, a greater standard. It's a higher bar. Let me read it to you, if I can find it. Oh, I like this version. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Paul said... In Corinthians, uh, you're going to give an account on that day for how you built. I, I'm, I'm, everything I'm doing right here is with one big background operating system going. I am accountable to the Lord for your spiritual development. And it, it, it keeps me from being totally self-absorbed about me. It helps me pray for you that you are getting this stuff. I, I know I am very, you know, Paul even says in some of these verses, look, I'm not that good at speaking. That's what he says. He said, you know, one translation says, my, 
My speech was contemptible and my presence unimpressive. Because it wasn't about him. It was about the seed and nurturing that seed of eternal life in every one of you so that it invades every section and core of your being, including the, ha- the way you react to each other and the react to your husbands and your wives and every circumstance that comes into your life that God allows. Every lousy circumstance that comes into your life is a circumstance for you to get more like Jesus. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Because those trials develop perseverance and endurance. And endurance produces Christ-like character. It's just His way, people. And every one of these circumstances that offends you and hurts you and cause you to be resentful or to be shy and withdraw, you go, that's, that's one of those? Yes. Because that's self-protection. It's, it's, it's a form of inauthenticity. Nobody really knows who you are. And you can sit back and be a judge instead of a participant. And then for all those who love to participate and be the life of the party, be quiet. Learn how to listen. Hear others. <laughs> Leaders have to give an account. It's over and over. Hebrews 7, 13, 17. Have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden. They're going to have to give an account. We're all giving an account to the Lord for this task. And I'm not talking just about mine. How many disciple makers do we have in this room? Don't raise your hand, but I hope we got a lot. I'm not trying to put, I don't want to shame anybody if you're not discipling somebody. But your goal, if you're not discipling somebody, by the way, here's what I did. I wasn't discipling anyone. I was, uh, I was right after this period of time alone with the Lord. And the Lord began to speak to me about becoming a disciple maker again. I'd quit doing it. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anybody that needed to be discipled. And the Lord said, well, start praying and asking me. I'll bring them to you. And, uh, you know, I was sharing the gospel with lost people. And um, then I got a call from Daniel after he got hit by a car at NC State. Kind of shook him up, woke him up. And he called and said, hey, Dad, would you disciple me and a couple of guys that NC State, and one of them was Chris Flowers, my son-in-law. He wasn't then, but he became one. And, and so the Lord just began to answer my prayer. I'm telling you, that's, that's a good way to start. If you're not discipling somebody, start asking the Lord. I want to give you something I wrote about leadership, and that's really all we're going to talk about, healthy leadership today. I, uh, I ran across an article s- several years ago about kind of a satire on leaders versus servant leaders. I just want to read you some of my comparison and contrast. And I'm using the term leader man versus servant leader. A leader man believes in the power of his personality, but a servant leader believes in the power and the processes of Jesus. A leader man needs a platform on which to say something. A servant leader has something to say one-on-one. 
leader man believes a platform is the best place of influence. A servant leader believes the best platform for influence is in a personal relationship. <clears throat> a leader man is obsessed with titles and positions. A servant leader believes titles are for outsiders, not the family of believers. So you can just call me Steve. A leader man believes that the best mentor is someone famous. A servant leader believes that he should be mentored regardless of his teacher's notoriety, but, but definitely because of his character or her character. This could be leader woman too, okay? A leader man wants you to know he's a leader. A servant leader wants you to know that serving others is how you can lead. A leader man wants to lead you. A servant leader wants to be your friend. A leader man loves the ideal of church. A servant leader loves all the different people in his church. A leader man is a great speaker and self-described as not a people person. A servant leader becomes a people person no matter what. A leader man helps you find where you are supposed to be in his organization. A servant leader helps you find where God is leading you in your calling in life. A leader man gets together with you to talk about vision, mostly his. A servant leader gets together with you to discover God's purposes for your life. Here's a good one. Re leader man resents sheep stealing. A servant leader doesn't get the stealing part since he doesn't own anyone. <coughs> a leader man is a visionary who knows what the future looks like. A servant leader knows what your family room looks like. Or you know what his family room looks like. A leader man says if it's worth doing, it's worth doing with excellence. A servant leader says if it's worth doing, then he figures that it's worth doing poorly rather than not at all. A leader man talks about confronting one another in love, and a servant leader actually confronts in love. Are you beginning to see something, this pattern here? We accept these guys that speak on these platforms week after week. They write books. They're famous. They have mega churches, and they fail with almost weekly regularity. And it's like you keep on accepting them. You keep on. Oh, they teach me the Bible, but they're not teaching you how to walk with Jesus. See, our measure isn't how much Bible you know. Somehow we've lost our way. And you know, here's the, here's the problem with this morning. You can vicariously believe that all the stuff that you agree with that I say, you actually are doing. When in fact, you're not doing any of it. When was the last time a resentment came up in your heart about someone else that you squashed before the presence of God as he began to show you how desperately wicked your heart could be? And then he says, not only do I not want you to resent them, I want you to be grateful for their success that you are not experiencing to kill that temptation for envy. 
and covetousness, which is the 10th command. See, all of this kind of stuff, God is into dealing with our deepest emotions. But see, here's the principle. You don't impart what you teach. You impart what you are. I could, I, I just want to tell you that. And in a way, that's how I'm going to be judged. And so you know what? You say, well, gosh, I'm not who, who I need to be. That's right. We aren't. That's what grace is for. So don't get under condemnation. Just say, Jesus, change me. And you know what? He can change you really quickly. He really can. But you have to be in touch with him, not some principle or doctrine or theory or concept. You've got to encounter the living God. That's why, that's why we emphasize in this church. And, I, and you know what? It actually makes some people leave. They, they, they kind of go, you're actually asking me to be mystical. Yeah, if that's what you want to label it. I want the God of the Old Testament to show up in my life. I want the God that walked in Nazareth to show up in my life. And he said by the Holy Spirit, Jesus was so incredibly excited about baptizing his church in the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he knew that finally he would permanently be with every one of us. That's why we teach this stuff. It's not so we can be different or weird or strange, even though we are different and weird and strange because of it. Only to them, to heaven and the angels, they think we're the most normal people on the planet. So who's your audience? Let's quit honoring those false apostles. That's what Paul was talking about. Let's quit honoring false leadership that looks... One of the things, I, I, as I began to come back involved in the church, I began to observe something. I, I got an MBA and big deal, but I studied leadership. And what I noticed is the same textbooks, except regurgitated with Bible verses, were being produced for the Christian church. And the church was emulating the way of the Gentiles. And I'm just telling you, that is unacceptable to Jesus. It does, it's, it's not, it's, it, <clears throat> those, re, those leaders will have their reward in this life, and that's it. They'll have the adulation of people, oh, wasn't he a great speaker? You know, how come Jesus never wrote a book? Oh my, I'm not saying, I'm, not, I'm glad some people have written books. Most of them are all dead guys. But I, I will say, so much of what we do is not rooted in the character of Jesus. It's, it's just, I mean, there's whole programs on how preachers can turn their sermons into books. Uh, 
you know, there's so much I've said in the past, and I'm glad I didn't write, write in the book. <laughs> All right. We're going to continue this. Elizabeth's going to be speaking next week at our baby de dedication. I can't wait. Woo! I'm excited. And then I'll continue on, and then we'll get into the Easter season. But I, I want you to all stand up with me and let's pray. By the way, a lot of these emotionally healthy, relationally healthy practices literally have to be taught. You, you, you literally have to be taught how to not be bad relationally or emotionally and the reason is is because we didn't get trained that way by our parents we didn't get trained by the, our, our, our fellow leaders and that's okay that's what, that's what the community is supposed to be you can be as bad and ugly as you want to be I'm still going to love you how many of us have that attitude about each other that's the attitude of Jesus Father, I just ask you to bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And I ask you to cancel anything that wasn't really from you. Lord, I pray for this people. We are a people. These are my people. They're your, as you said, these are my people. Lord, may every one of us get that sense that we belong to you we are the family of God we are the people of God Lord over the next over the next year I ask that you would just help us to become the kind of church that the world says well there's that one exception yeah I don't know about all those Christians but there, there, there's a group of them over there that they just are amazing Lord, I just pray that we would do you well to be called your, your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray for every, I pray for all our college kids this morning and all the young adults that are accompanying them as they go and proclaim the good news like you sent your disciples out in Luke 10 to go and preach the good news and share the gospel to strangers and that they would love them well and they would help them get free from their bondages and their blindnesses. Lord, I pray for courage and boldness. I pray for all those young 18, 19, 20-year-olds who have never done this before. I pray that they would find the sense of the Holy Spirit's presence in their life. And Lord, I pray for the nursery workers because I went long today. Amen. <laughs>